Hello everyone, and welcome to the 14th episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway to the world of science. Today's scientist is Graham Lau, a research scientist at Blue Marble Space Institute of Science and host of the Ask an Astrobiologist show. Welcome, Graham. Hi. So my first question is always the same. Um, do you have a fun fact or a fun science anecdote for us? Oh gosh, um, there's so many. There's so much that we've learned about the universe and our place in it. That's staggering. Um, one of my favorites to tell people, because I think a lot of people don't believe it, is that uh, the moon, as it orbits around our planet, it causes the tides. Um, the tides aren't, you know, the oceans just rising and falling by happenstance. They're, the water is actually rising towards the moon because the moon's gravity is pulling that water closer to it. One thing that people don't believe often, and, and I have a personal anecdote for this, um, as the moon orbits around the earth, it's not just lifting up water. It's also lifting up the earth, the ground under our feet. Um, so as the moon orbits around, if you look up in the sky at night and you see the moon, the ground below you and your body are being drawn slightly towards the moon. There's, there's this little bit of flexing that our planet does towards the moon. And people don't believe that. It just seems so bizarre, but it's entirely true. Um, and so for a personal story, I, I when I first learned this many years ago, I was training in Japanese jiu-jitsu uh, at a school in Pennsylvania. And I remember after one of the classes, we were having a conversation just randomly about space stuff. And I told some of the other karateka I was training with um, about this, about this, this fact. And they all just started laughing because no one believed it. And even now, when I tell people this, I oftentimes get a lot of people who just do not believe it's possible. Well, it really does sound amazing. I didn't know that at all. But yeah, I believe it. But it, it's insane to think about. Have Do you have an idea of how much it, it matters? I mean, so it doesn't actually matter that much um, because, you know, our moon is a very large moon, um, but our Earth is also very dense. Our Earth has a very large core, um, some of which came from the time when the moon was formed. Um, another world we think crashed into our, our planet in a, a grazing shot, basically, and and the core of that world, most of it got sunk into our core and, and joined our Earth. And then a lot of the lighter material from our planet and that world became the moon, which is why the moon is, is very light. Um, but so our Earth is not only very dense, but we also have that nice giant ball of, you know, fusing hydrogen and helium in the sky. You know, we have, we have the sun as our local star, and we're pretty close to it. And so even though, yes, the, the, the moon is enough to, to bulge the earth and to pull on the rock and to cause the tides, it's not that much right now. However, if you go back in time to when the moon first formed, you know, roughly four billion years ago, not long after the earth formed, we had this moon forming event, um, you know, maybe 4.4 or something like that, 4.3 billion years ago. Um, during the moon forming event, when the moon was much, much closer to the earth, the, the hours of our days might have been something like four hours and honestly, if we had extensive oceans at that point, which a lot of us think could be very likely, um, then most likely the tides and the waves being driven by the moon being so close back then could have made a humongous difference. Um, maybe even so much that one place we should be looking for like the origin of life on early Earth might have been in all of the water that was like being splashed and sloshed around through all these tides and waves and stuff because the moon was so close. Um, it really was a different world back then by far. Um, but yeah, for us in our modern lives, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. Um, you know, your audience might know that the moon is slowly moving away from the earth. 
It gets a little bit further every single year. It's going to keep doing that for quite some time. Um, we live at a very unique time where the moon in the sky just seems to be the right apparent size that it can still entirely cover the sun and give us a full solar eclipse. Um, eventually, that will go away as well, that there there would no, no more full solar eclipses for Earth anymore, um, unless we create, you know, an artificial one of some kind. Um, but it's still, it's still, you know, it's just cool to learn about, you know, the nature of our universe like that and to, to better understand our place in it. You know, this progression of science, you know, it's, it's, it's taken us millennia, you know, through our ancestors, through time from different ancient civilizations who started piecing some of these things together up through modern day science, which is a much different thing than science was back then. You have touched on so many interesting things already. Um, like for example, I, I, personally didn't know that the moon is moving away from us. Um, so at some point, will we actually lose the moon? Will it go out of orbit? Yeah, it's been some time since I, I caught up on recent research on this. To my knowledge, I think it's going to move away to a certain point. It'll slow down, kind of moving away. And eventually, it will be entirely tidally locked. Um, so it'll just face one side of the planet at all times and orbit with the Earth at all times. Um, I don't know how long that's going to be, though. I imagine it's quite a long time into the future before that could happen. And who knows what we'll have done to our world or to our moon or, or to our solar system by that point. Yeah. And also something that a lot of people don't think about, that there was a point before the Earth had a moon. So at some point, the Earth didn't have a moon. Uh, was Earth very different then? Did it have a big effect on on how Earth was at its at its yeah at its core probably but also just how it was um to live on if if you can talk about life at that point i don't think so yeah i don't i don't, I don't personally believe we can uh, the moon forming event itself would have been disruptive to any life on the surface of the planet um but the early earth and then and this is like very early in the history of the solar system right after the earth formed some you know maybe 100 million years something like that it, it was very short period of time when we had this moon forming event occur and we had a large you know bombardment of materials um when i think about the early solar system you know i think about the early earth and early mars and early jupiter you know and these worlds are forming you know with with all of our current science like we that the early solar system probably looked nothing like it does now primarily because there was so much more stuff um, so many small bodies, you know, being orbited around and kind of being slung here and there. The giant worlds, Jupiter and Saturn, as they were moving, were most likely kicking some of these large bodies either out of our solar system or just really, really far away from our sun. Um, some of that material might now be the basis for a lot of the comets that are long period comets. Um, there's even possibilities that there could be other planets, decent sized planets, even maybe even large planets that were kicked uh, into the outer regions of our solar system where we still really have never traveled. Um, you know, even with you know, the Pioneer 10 and 11 and Voyager 1 and 2 and the New Horizons missions, you know, those are all traveling out into space, you know, and Voyager 1 and Voyager 2 are the, the furthest, you know, pieces of humanity right now in the cosmos. And they, they are very far out there, um, but they actually have still quite a long way to go before they actually leave uh, our solar system altogether. Um, they are certainly in interstellar space, but they're also certainly still within our solar system. Um, you know, so, so we have this idea of this thing called the Oort cloud, this big realm of space that kind of is a spherical shell that surrounds our solar system. Uh, Voyager 1 and 2 have not gotten to that part of space yet, and they might not for many, many, many years to come. Um, and so, yeah, so we, we don't know fully um, what the inner solar system looked like or what the, what the outer solar system looked like in the early history uh, of, of the formation of the sun and all of our planets. 
but it must have been a really chaotic and hectic inner solar system early on, you know, and, and it's believed um, currently that the, the world that crashed into the Earth that formed the moon was something maybe close to the size of Mars. Uh, and so it wasn't just a small asteroid. It was a pretty big planet that actually crashed into the Earth and, and drove this moon forming event. Um, and so, yeah, the inner solar system would have been a bizarre, bizarre place. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't think about life at that point. Um, as far back as we start looking in, in the rock record, you know, we have rocks that go back 3.5, 3.8 billion years. There are some minerals we have from vestigial rocks from forever ago, from 4 billion or maybe slightly older than 4 billion years. But we don't really have that many of the early rocks from our planet. Um, our Earth is constantly recycling the rock. And so a lot of rock in the, in the, in the, on the crust of our planet gets subducted down into the mantle and and recycled, you know, in this this large process of plate tectonics, there's only a few places on our planet uh, at the continental crust where we have very old rock. Um, in these places we call cratons, you know, up in you know Canada and Greenland and in South Africa and Australia, there's a few places where we have these really ancient rocks. Um, but even then, we get we you know they're 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 not really that old. They're not the the whole age of the planet. And so we can't know for sure, but it seems likely that you know when the Earth was first forming, it would have been molten at the surface highly unlikely for life during that moon forming event. And a lot of that early bombardment, um, most likely not a great place for life. But then, you know, not long after that, at least based on our current knowledge, it seems like life came here pretty fast. Um, whether it started here or whether it came here from somewhere else, we don't know that yet. Yeah, that's the uh, panspermia hypothesis, right? That Yeah, the, is, the idea yeah. of panspermia, yeah, that seeds everywhere is basically what that, that term means. Um, it's this idea that life could, you know, maybe hitch a ride on an asteroidal piece of material or rock shot off of another planet. Um, some people hypothesize that maybe panspermia could have brought life here from somewhere else, from another star system. Um, I personally don't lean towards that as much. Um, there's the, the vast distances between star systems over time um, suggest to me that it's not as likely if life did come here from another world, I, I personally would look to either Mars or Venus as a much better candidate for an earlier origin of life and then life being bombarded and blasted into space and then coming here to Earth. Um, but one of the best things about science, and especially for astrobiologists like me, is, you know, is there's a lot of stuff we just don't know yet, you know, and it's, it's kind of fun. We get to say, you know, this is what we think could have happened. This is what we think might be likely, but we honestly don't know. I, I really want to dive right into that, but we actually already dove right into it. And uh, I, maybe our listeners need a little bit more framing. Um, so you're an astrobiologist. What, what does that mean, being an astrobiologist? Yeah, you know, I used to I used to give talks and I would, you know, I'd say, who, who knows who's here heard of astrobiology? And no one raised their hand. And I feel like now when I say like, you know, who's heard of astrobiology, especially the young children, like everyone, everyone seems to be hearing about it now. And that's fantastic. And I, I feel like, you know, people have heard about like Carl Sagan and Neil deGrasse Tyson, you know, and, and now we have like movies and television shows and things and like in the expanse, there's an astrobiologist, you know, and like new movies and things. We, we talk about these astrobiologists who are looking for alien life and and television shows, you know, over time have had xenobiologists and exobiologists. And, and now the more the more common term now is astrobiologist. Um, astrobiology itself, if you if you look at a definition like from like NASA astrobiology, it'll say something like astrobiology is the science of the, the origins, evolution and distribution of life in the universe. For me, I think of astrobiology as our quest to understand life. It really is 
the culmination of not just human science, not, not just the tool of science to try to understand what life is and where it comes from and whether or not we're alone. It really, it includes a lot more than that. It really brings in a lot more of the human understanding of what it means for us to be here right now, even asking these questions, you know, like, why are we here? You know, what, what brought us here? And and we're at a point now where we're traveling into space and looking back at our planet with our own bodies. We get to do this and and it's pretty remarkable. And so astrobiology is kind of a culmination of different fields of study of trying to understand what life is. When you say what life is, does it mean that you also in incorporate some philosophy or, or not really? Oh, yeah, there's a whole realm of the philosophy of astrobiology. Um, you know, there's some great people out there doing work like Chelsea Jeremia um and and carol cleland um many other philosophers i'll forget a lot of names right now unfortunately but uh, there's actually a group called called socia uh it's the society for social and conceptual issues in astrobiology uh, they have meetings every other year where they get together with scientists as well as philosophers and other researchers psychologists people who are studying communication and things like that um and present on these topics these very societal issues and conceptual issues as they relate to astrobiology um and so when it comes to the philosophy there are questions you know like how do we define life can we define life um you know as much as it makes our uh, scratch our heads right now we've had over 300 attempts to define life within the scientific literature and still there there is no uh consensus on a definition of what life is uh, even the NASA definition, as you might see it online, if you go to like a Wikipedia article or the NASA website and you see a definition of life, it'll say something like life is a chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution um, or a self-sustained chemical system capable of Darwinian evolution. But even that misses out on some things that could potentially be life. It misses out on the question of whether or not artificial intelligence will be a form of life or not. Is there post-biological life out there? Um, and so there, there's so many questions. And so for us to, to answer those questions, we need not just the tools of science, the, the instrumentation, the data analysis, the interpretation. We also, we also need the thought process, the philosophy to try to frame our thinking in, in what we're trying to understand about life and, and trying to understand and characterize what life is. Yeah, so it's actually an intersection of a lot of dif different disciplines. And uh, in the field of astrobiology, well, what is your discipline? What do you like look at exactly? Yeah, so my, my, my research background is in geochemistry originally. Uh, I earned my PhD a little over five years ago now, and uh, my primary realm was studying mineralogy uh, and geochemistry um, of polar environments and related to sulfur chemistry, using that to understand how we look for life in a place like Europa or Mars. Uh, since that time, I've now, you know, my, my career has taken a much different trajectory. I'm now working on a bunch of different things. Um, one project I'm working on involves meditation and the overview effect. Um, another project that I'm working on right now is, is with the Center for Life Detection. We're developing a knowledge base, as we call it, uh, a life detection knowledge base that helps us bring together all of our learning about biosignatures, uh, possible signs of life out there. Uh, and bring together all of the scientific argumentation about whether or not those signs of life are useful for our missions that are upcoming. Um, and then I also wear several other hats in the realm of being a science communicator, a public speaker. And I'm also very fortunate. I'm a mentor for a lot of younger students uh, and early career researchers who are, who are also getting started. And so it's so cool for me to see them kind of growing and learning more and, and becoming involved, not just in the science, but also how we share the science. 
just a short callback when you said Europa, you mean like the moon of Venus, right? Or uh, it's a moon of Jupiter. Jupiter, sorry. Uh, so when when Galileo uh, turned his telescope to the skies uh, in 1609, he was the first human being to observe moons around another world besides our own. Uh, he saw these four little points of light around Jupiter uh, through 1609 and 1610 in his early observations. He was looking at these little points of light, and they were moving around Jupiter. And at first, he thought they were stars. Um, he called them the Medician stars after the the, the the wealthy family who was who was supporting his work. But then he realized that they weren't stars that were traveling with the other stars. They were moving kind of around Jupiter. Uh, and that's when he came to the realization he was observing moons that were orbiting around Jupiter itself. And and so those first four moons that he discovered outside of Earth's moon, uh, we call those the Galilean moons because of that. Uh, Europa is one of them, um, along with, with Io, Ganymede, and Callisto. And is that one of the best places to look for life in our solar system? If I were a gambling person, I would say yes. Um, that is a good place to look. So like I said, in the early solar system, who knows, maybe Venus had life and that life could have come here from Venus. We don't know. Um, but Venus has gone through a lot of changes and modern day Venus at its surface is not a great place for life. Now, there's some current uh, and very, very reasonable debate as to whether or not there could be life in the clouds of Venus, but at least at the surface, it doesn't seem very likely for any form of life that we know of. It's extremely high temperature, um, extremely uh, high pressure, uh, very unlikely for the kinds of chemical reactions for life as we know it to be able to thrive at the surface of Venus. But, you know, we look at other worlds like Mars is a great candidate. Maybe Mars once had oceans. Uh, it certainly had lakes and rivers um, in the ancient past. And so Mars itself might have been a great place, you know, for life to have originated and evolved. Um, but then other places in our solar system that we look at, Europa is a great one, um, along with some like Enceladus or Triton. Um, there are some moons in our, in our solar system that we know of for sure, or we have an inkling of, uh, have these oceans underneath of their icy surfaces. And Europa is a really good candidate. Uh, not only is it a very big moon, it's, it's close to the same size as our own moon, um, but Europa also underneath of its icy crust, which is maybe we currently guess most of us around 10 kilometers. We don't know for sure it could be thicker. Um, but down below that is an ocean that could be some 100 kilometers in deeper in, in depth. Um, that's a lot of water. That's way deeper than the, than the Earth's oceans um, by a long shot. And so all of that water in Europa's ocean is more water than we have here on Earth in our own oceans. Uh, and so that's just it just seems like a great place if there if life can originate and evolve in an ocean. Um, and there's some debate right now as to whether or not that's possible, but say life can start in an ocean, maybe around a hydrothermal vent, then a place like uh, Europa is a really good target. And yeah, I haven't heard that. Why would life not be able to uh, originate from an ocean? A lot of the argument for why it might not be possible comes from the chemistry. Um, primarily the chemistry of dilution, <laughs> um, you know, like it's all that water. So even around hydrothermal vents, we have these mineral systems and things forming around hydrothermal vents, but, but a, a lot of the chemical reactions that need to occur need to be contained somehow, uh, we think, for early life to originate. Uh, and maybe around a hydrothermal vent, with all of that water constantly just flushing things out, it might not be the best system. Um, and so other places, like I mentioned, you know, maybe aerosolized water particles in the early Earth could be a great place to look. 
uh, they would provide little compartments, basically little cells in the form of water droplets where chemistry would be constrained um, inside of that, that material. But another great place, as recently proposed by, by Bruce Damer and Dave Deemer, um, in what they call their hot spring hypothesis, is that uh, on terrestrial areas, so on land, around hot springs, um, places like we see in Yellowstone National Park, um, here in the United States, like there, there's these places around the world where we have hot springs forming uh, from the heated fluid that comes up from from, from below. Um, they also could provide really good places for wetting and drying cycles. And so, as as Damer and Deemer have argued, uh, these wetting and drying cycles might be really crucial to the chemistry that was required for an origination of life early on on Earth. How would you connect that to, to the Miller-Urey experiment? Because that's how, yeah, that was an experiment where they um, actually combined all the early chemicals on Earth and the water system and they let it flow. Uh, maybe you can explain it better than I do. Yeah, um, so, so Stanley Miller and Harold Urey were two researchers, uh, actually a graduate student and an advisor, um, working together on, you know, what was the chemistry of the early Earth and trying to see, you know, like what happens when you have a chemical system that replicates the early Earth. And our knowledge of the early Earth actually has changed a bit since the time of their early experiment. Um, but the timing was really kind of intriguing for our study of astrobiology and trying to understand life. It brought a lot of light to the possibility of, of an origin of life on Earth. Um, because then, just as now, we, we didn't know how life started. And it's a big question. And so what Miller and Yuri did, they 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 built these apparatus, um, these, these, you know, these glass containers, they're big bulbs with, you know, different inlets and outlets. Um, and what they did is they they tried to replicate the chemistry of of early Earth seawater um, using the best geological knowledge of that period. They tried to replicate uh, the chemistry of the atmosphere, so the gas around that water, um, to the best of their knowledge. And, and we 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 know fairly well the Earth's uh, early atmosphere would have been very reducing. We call it. Um, so there wouldn't have been any free oxygen, for instance, like there is now. The oxygen that we have in our atmosphere now comes from life. Um, on the early Earth, it was more hydrogen, carbon dioxide, nitrogen, that kind of stuff. Um, so they have this, you know, early Earth atmosphere around some early Earth water, and they were running reactions to see what would happen. Um, and one thing they noticed early on is, is nothing was happening with just the water and just the air. Uh, and so they they started trying to just be like, well, what happens if there's an, an energy input? And so they thought of some different ways, you know, heating up the vial with you know some fire, um, seeing if that that caused any difference in chemical reactions. But the really intriguing one that they thought of was was lightning, it was a, a source of spark um, into the reaction. And so they they added some electrodes into the reaction that would drive these little sparks inside of this this reaction uh, apparatus. And what they noticed is is very quickly uh, this gunk, this material, started to form inside of the water. Um, and we now know after them doing the experiment many times, others have replicated that experiment over and over again. Um, we now know that what's happening is the formation of organic molecules. Um, so that early ocean chemistry mixed with that early atmospheric chemistry, um, it makes organics. Um, if you toss in some minerals, you get even more, like the things just start kind of taking off. Um, and so there are people who are still doing those experiments today, um, seeing what kind of variations we get in the kinds of organics that are forming. Um, that experiment was crucial for us to realize that the, the biomolecules that we're made of, all of the organic chemistry that makes us up, um, it could be formed. Um, the, the, the building blocks for those larger biomolecules could be formed in the early Earth just with the ocean and the atmosphere and some, some energy. Um, now, of course, you know, in 
the many decades since that time, we've now discovered lots of organics, like amino acids and things like that inside of asteroids and comet material. Uh, we now know, know that it just forms in space naturally. A lot of organics just form naturally. Um, a big question, though, still for the origin of life is how do we get from those building block molecules of you know really basic amino acids and nucleic acids, how do we get from those into the system that we have with you know using you know DNA and RNA and proteins and you know how do we get all of this to actually actually start going and start forming um, you know life as we know it performs catalysis it catalyzes chemical reactions it causes them to move faster and and to pre proceed sometimes when they wouldn't even proceed on their own uh, life can overcome energetic barriers to push some reactions forward. Uh, and so we would have needed some impetus for early life to start that process of catalyzing um, things and then also for life to share its information for heredity to happen. Um, so there's there's a lot of little steps. We still don't know how it happened. And personally, I, I for one, don't think we're ever going to know for sure how it happened here on Earth. I, I think it will remain a mystery for us for all time. Um, but I, I think we are very close. There's a lot of great people out there right now doing origins of life research who are getting really close to some of those those early networks and reactions that could have led to life as we know it. That's also a bit more maybe a philosophical question, but um, how would you define life in the sense, do we need DNA to, to talk about something living? Yeah, so again, so you know, we've had all these attempts to define life and, and none of them really work. Um, and so what a lot of us end up doing is characterizing life. We talk about what life does. Um, life as we currently know it here on Earth, it uses DNA as its storage system for storing information that gets passed, you know, through our genes, um, you know, through hereditary process. And that's, that allows for evolution for us to, to pass our DNA on. Um, and the mutation, the change in that DNA, it allows for evolution to actually happen for, for adaptation and, and, and for change. Um, but we don't know if that's necessary for all life. And a lot of us think it's probably not. Um, there are plenty of other forms of nucleic acids, other possible information systems. Maybe there's life out there that doesn't even use nucleic acids like a DNA or RNA or, or anything even similar. Maybe it uses an entire, entirely different structure. Um, life, as we know, it just happened upon using amino acids linked together in proteins for a lot of the structure of, our, of life, of our cells, of our bodies. Um, but maybe there are other ways of doing it out there, other forms of chemistry that we just don't really know yet. Uh, and so that's part of the fun of, of astrobiology is there's just so much we don't know. It allows for a lot of speculation, um, but a lot of healthy speculation. It allows for us to use our knowledge of physics, our knowledge of chemistry, and then to try to apply that to what could be possible. Uh, and what, what can we actually you know, bound? What, what can we frame by the, the laws of physics and chemistry as we know them? And do we have any idea how life would look like without DNA, without those nucleic acids? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> There's probably no way to find out, right? Yeah, I mean, we, we haven't created that life yet. Um, we don't know what it would look like. And, and even say, say we do find alien life and it does happen to use DNA and proteins, um, that doesn't mean it, it uses it in the same ways. There might be entirely different ways of using DNA. There might be different nucleobases, for instance, for DNA. Uh, those nucleobases might store information a lot differently. Um, so, you know, DNA and RNA that we have, these nucleic acids, um, they have different bases inside of them that are linked together in these helices or in single strands. 
Um, and those those nucleobases, as we call them, uh, we use four for DNA um, for life as we know it. But there's a lot of other possible options. And so maybe there's some alien life out there that has more information packed into a, a smaller area because it's using some different different nucleobases in a different way. Um, maybe it's found different kinds of amino acids to link together that have different functions chemically. And so it leaves a lot of room for possibility for what life might do. Um, one place that I, I'm extremely intrigued myself as a scientist and just as you know a sci-fi nerd and a thinker is, is what things might alien life do? there's a good chance that it will have some similarities to life as we know it. There are processes, you know, that, that life does that most likely alien life would have figured out too. Uh, some very basic chemical reactions that we do in our metabolisms, for instance, um, that might be very common. Um, for instance, you know, photosynthesis uh, and like uh, carbon fixation, taking in carbon dioxide and using that carbon um, to build biomolecules, that, that might be a process that aliens have figured out as well. Uh, utilizing sunlight or starlight for energy might be something that, that aliens have figured out as well. Uh, I'm actually working on a short uh, article right now that I'm, I'm hoping to publish online um, about trees. Um, I think that there should be alien trees out there. Um, and a very there's there's well two good reasons for that. One, it's a very a very smart thing for life to have figured out. It allows a plant to reach up higher to get closer to starlight, but it also allows for competition, so the plant can get more starlight than the other plants around it. Um, but also, there is no single scientific uh, group. There's no taxonomic group called trees. Uh, there are trees and all kinds of different families of plants. And some plant families are only trees. Some plant families are are some trees and some herbaceous plants. And then some 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 uh, plant families have no trees in them. Uh, and so the tree itself is actually a convergent evolutionary process. Uh, life has converged on making a tree out of plants in several different cases. And since that's the case, that suggests to me that it might be an imperative for life in the universe to make trees once it has a uh, photosynthesis figured out. I really love that idea because I'm a plant biologist or an ecophysiologist and I work a lot on trees as well. Oh, that's awesome. Um, yeah, so that's really interesting to me. Um, so you think they would also photosynthesize, but maybe they could use different pathways or something, but you think they would also be carbon-based, right? So we discussed this a lot in astrobiology and I get that question a lot from people like, um, will we find silicon-based life, for instance, rather than carbon? Uh, silicon is just one slot down. It's, it's one row down uh, on the periodic table right under carbon. And so it also makes really nice uh, uh, bonds. Um, it also can make long molecules of silicon atoms all linked together. And so some people have wondered, is silicon also a likely candidate for backbone for life? And the true answer is maybe. Seems possible. Um, there are there are other chemical elements that also make make long chains. Boron does it. Uh, sulfur does it. There, there's a lot of other other possible things that could be used for a backbone. Uh, carbon, though, one, it's it's a smaller element, and so it's very abundant um, in the universe and on our world, most likely on alien worlds. Um, and even though we have a lot of silicon in our crust. Uh, carbon, as far as the chemistry is concerned, it makes better bonds, stronger bonds for molecules. And I just I can't really think of a good situation in which carbon would be so depleted 
that silicon would be more abundant and more likely to become the backbone of life. It seems to me like, if anything, it'd be a carbon system for a backbone that would then somehow figure out how to use silicon. Uh, just like diatoms um, have you learned to make silicon frustules around themselves. Um, you know, and now we are at this point of potentially making silicon-based artificial intelligence and artificial life. Um, so I, I think that's more likely the, the 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 likely case for most alien life, but I wouldn't say it's impossible. There could be other forms of chemistry out there. Um, and then also for life as we know it, life life as we know it uses water as its solvent. It's possible though that alien life out there could evolve a different kind of chemistry. Um, so say there is silicon-based life. There's um a great paper from a few years ago. It's a it's a review paper that Sarah Seeger um, gosh, I can't remember all the authors now, uh, Baines and Petkowski, I think are the other authors, um, where they explored silicon as a potential backbone for life. Uh, and one of the things that they show in this paper that I think they did a, a great job of is that, uh, silicon, silicon bonds actually aren't that stable in water. Uh, they're not good for water-based, you know, life like we are. Um, but there are some solvents where actually silicon, silicon bonds are very strong. Uh, so like aprotic cryosolvents. Um, so, so, you know, things like hydrocarbons on a very cold world, like Titan, a moon of Saturn, that could be a great place for a silicon, silicon bond and silicon chemistry to form. Um, and so there's a lot of possibility. It really depends on the chemistry, but when it comes to life on a world like the earth with lots of water and plenty of carbon, it just seems like this is the best pathway to use is to use carbon and water. A while ago, there was also an interesting paper on, uh, the Miller-Urey experiment actually, um, so we we often use uh, glass and chemistry to do experiments, but uh, glass also contains a lot of silicon. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, the paper stated that the silicon was used as a catalyst to create those organic molecules. Uh, based on your expression, I assume you know the the paper. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so that's kind of what I'm talking about when we're thinking about the minerals involved in these reactions too. The glass vessel itself can be a, a, a site of catalysis to drive some reactions forward. Um, it wasn't a biological catalysis, but it was like a mineral catalysis. It was providing the, you know, the surface sites for the chemistry to happen, um, which is part of also why we, a lot of us think that if, you know, life originated on earth or, or any, honest anywhere, that the, the process of an origin most likely did require a strong connection between the solvent and the chemistry within the solvent, but also any hard materials like minerals and the rocks that were nearby. Um, and so that all kind of plays into the different kinds of chemical reactions that could occur. And the minerals themselves might have been the sites that were driving the reactions forward. And when we're talking about the, the search of life on, on different exoplanets, um, we're looking at bi biosignatures. But how, how do you look at biosignatures bio of an exoplanet? How do you find that? Yeah. So the word biosignature itself, it's, it's a sign of life. Um, there are different attempts at defining this. There's an idea that it's, you know, it's the different the different patterns and processes and structures that we can see out there that that life creates. Um, for a lot of us, a biosignature needs to be a sign of life um, and only life. And and so for some people, you know, that there are things that 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 are formed by life that are also formed without life around. Uh, and so some people would think those, those are not very good biosignatures, and so we're not going to call them that. Um, when it comes to looking for signs of life, there's a lot of stuff that life does, a lot of stuff that life produces. 
Um, so we can look for things like fossils here on Earth and find some you know record of ancient life from long ago. But we can also look at you know in the rocks, like in the minerals. We can look at the chemistry and see was there some kind of um, disequilibrium that was being driven in one direction by some chemical process, um, and and could that process have been life? Um, you know, we can look for things like I said, like here on Earth, all of the oxygen in our atmosphere, you know, that we're breathing, it all comes from life. Um, it comes from trees, certainly. Um, they usually get most of the credit, <laughs> um, but it also comes from a lot of photosynthetic organisms, you know, phytoplankton in the oceans, photosynthetic organisms in the ground and the soil. Um, there are a lot of things that are fixing carbon, taking in carbon dioxide. Uh, these autotrophic organisms, they're taking in carbon dioxide and using that carbon inside of their bodies. Um, you know, and then there, there are things that they're producing as well. And, and for the oxygenic photosynthesis, uh, these things that are using sunlight and taking in carbon, um, they're blowing off. Uh, as they're exhalant, uh, they're exhaling oxygen into our atmosphere. And so now our atmosphere has 21% oxygen because of life, because of the, the living process that's going on with our planet. And so the question now has become like, if we look at an exoplanet, you know, these worlds around other stars, and we're looking for possible signs of life, we're not going to look at the surface of those worlds yet. Uh, we're not going to be looking, you know, down, you know, small, small stru structures like cells or we're looking for plants and animals. We're looking at their atmospheres. And so we're very much right now bound by the chemistry of exoplanet atmospheres when it comes for looking for possible signs of life there. And so one question people often have is, is, is oxygen a biosignature? If we, if we find oxygen in an exoplanet atmosphere, is it a biosignature? It certainly is here on Earth. Uh, could it be somewhere else? And and so uh, one thing that a lot of researchers have been have been looking into is can oxygen be formed uh, in worlds out there without life? Um, and there there are a bunch of potential processes that could occur that could lead to oxygen formation. Uh, so another great question then becomes: uh, Can we survey multiple different kinds of molecules inside of a, an atmosphere of an, of an exoplanet uh, and use them to tell us whether or not there is some disequilibrium being driven by a possible life. A great example here on Earth is not only do we have oxygen, we, we have methane in our atmosphere. Uh, oxygen and methane in an atmosphere like ours, uh, they react very quickly with each other. And so the fact that we actually have methane means the methane is also being produced somehow. And our methane, in, in most cases, is being produced by living things. <laughs> uh, and there's a, a lot of processes that produce methane from cows uh, and, and other ruminants farting and, and releasing a lot of methane um, to the breakdown of, of organic materials and swamps and bogs. There's all kinds of things that, that produce methane, um, as well as now we have a lot of industrialization releasing methane, too. Um, but in our atmosphere, we have a little bit of methane and a lot of oxygen, and that should not be the case. And so a lot of researchers now are thinking more about the chemical systematics, um, you know, how we can look at multiple different sets of molecules in an atmosphere um, and maybe even over time and see if there's any change in those molecules. But even just having, you know, something like oxygen and methane or, or some other pairs of molecules that that really should not exist together in an atmosphere, it could be pretty telling. Um, it might not immediately tell us about a biological process. It could be like volcanoes erupting, there could be some other large-scale geological process occurring, but it at least will give us a good target of something to look for in looking for alien life. Just one small side note, uh, methane from cows is actually not from the farts, but from the from burps from the stomach. Oh, from the cud, yeah. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, but so we have the methane and the oxygen on an exoplanet, but how do we know it's there? How do we check that? Yeah, I mean... Honestly, that's that's also a good scientific fact that is mind blowing. 
um, the fact that we can measure the chemistry of the atmosphere of an exoplanet, I mean, it's mind-blowing. When you just think about the, the sheer distances, how far away we are from those worlds, and then how we're actually getting those data, it's incredible. Um, so the, the main way right now, so like James Webb Space Telescope, for instance, JWST, um, it's collecting spectra uh, from some exoplanets. Um, spectra basically is, is how we take in the light, and then we can look at changes in the light at, at different wavelengths, uh, over different frequencies, and that tells us about the chemistry. Um, occurring in the atmosphere. And the way it's happening for, for these exoplanets right now, um, as these small exoplanets, and some of them are you know Jupiter sized, but as, as these worlds so far away are coming in front of their stars, a little bit of that starlight is making its way through the little edge of atmosphere on the side of that world. And that little bit of light coming through and interacting with the chemistry of the atmosphere, that light is coming to us and we can compare that light to the rest of the light around it. And that little bit of light, it's, it's incredible to think how much, uh, how little this is uh, of the signal that's coming through. But we've, we've built these, these instruments that can resolve that, that signal in the spectrum. Uh, they can resolve that chemistry inside of that spectrum. Um, it's, it's almost mind-blowing when you think about it that, that you know, we've not only you know evolve to better understand what we are as beings here on this planet and, and part of the evolutionary process of life, life as we know it, but now we're sending humans into space, we're sending spacecraft into interstellar space, and now we're building instruments large enough that they can look at the chemistry of, of atmospheres, of worlds that are billions and billions of miles away. Um, it's incredible. The resolution of those images must be amazing to even to be able to distinguish that small fraction around an exoplanet and yeah, be uncovered by the sun or behind before the sun. That's insane. Is that one of the most groundbreaking dis discoveries in astrobiology, according to you? Or do you have something more bigger or significant in mind? That's a good question. Um, you know, when I was born, when I was a kid, we didn't have any exoplanets. We didn't know of any of them for sure. Uh, the first detections came in 1992, and then the very first de detection of what we call a main sequence star planet. Um, so the main sequence is, is a realm of of different uh, luminosities um, of stars that kind of they all, they all kind of like fall on this little I guess uh, this is kind of direction together. Um, it's kind of like the main lifetime. Most stars they fall in this little area of a plot together um, that we can understand them based on their color and their their how much how much light they're emitting. Um, and so in 1995, we had the first detection of an exoplanet around a world in this main sequence in stars that are like our sun and like the majority of stars that we see out there. Um, and so a lot has changed since then. Now it's over 5,000, uh, you know, so going from zero exoplanets to 5,000 in my lifetime is pretty staggering. So that that by itself is a huge discovery, um, not just for astrobiology, but for cosmology and, and planetary science and, and all of all of human knowledge. Um, but yeah, that then now that we have the ability to look at the chemistry of these exoplanets, that is a very big step for astrobiology. Um, you know, as much as some people don't like to admit it, um, we might be alone in the universe, but we also might just be alone here in our solar system. Maybe life only happened on Earth. Maybe there never was any life on Mars or Venus or Europa or Enceladus. It's entirely possible. And so it might happen that the very first signs of alien life come from an exoplanet. And given how rapidly we're finding new ones to target 
and getting better understanding of their chemistry, that really is opening up the window to us to learn a lot more about possible life out there. Now, is that the most significant discovery for astrobiology? I don't know, actually. You know, we, we have these giant transitions in science that happen over time of, of things we learn. So the Miller-Urey experiment was a huge success and it, it taught us a lot. Um, it's a very important piece of the history. Um, the discovery of hydrothermal vents. Um, you know, in 1977 was the very first um, actual discovery. We, we had some information before that suggesting these really weird anomalies on the seafloor. Um, in 77, uh, some researchers went down and they discovered that these are actually vents blowing hot fluids into the ocean from the seafloor. Um, that was a huge discovery. Um, the discovery of extremophiles. Um, and there's been so many of those, but some of the biggest ones were things like uh, the discovery of these organisms in Yellowstone National Park uh, that can can do chemical, biochemical reactions of life as we know it, but they do it at very high temperatures and they're thriving in these hot springs. Um, that was a huge discovery for astrobiology. Um, so we have like these major transition points, these things that we learn along the way that are all huge, but then they're also all underpinned by so many people working together through the processes of science to slowly build up our knowledge. And so, yeah, we have these big major milestone moments, but we also just like every day we have these little moments happening too. Yeah, I also want to go back to something you said. You said it's uh, entirely possible that we are alone. Do you think we are alone in the universe? What's your personal opinion or scientific based opinion? So there's, there's two things there. So one is my personal feeling and the other is my, my concept based on logic and, and science. And so if we're looking at this from a very logical point of view, based on our current knowledge, um, which will always be bound to change and it can change in the future, and I kind of hope it does, but based on our current knowledge, we have to say that we could be alone in the universe. Even if that feels very, very, very unlikely, it is still a possibility based on what we currently know. So until we find some sign of definitive alien life out there, it remains possible that has never, ever happened elsewhere. Now, if that's the case, personally, I, I feel like if that's the case, then, man, we have a really crazy imperative biologically and cosmologically, not only to continue to exist and not destroy ourselves, but we also might be then responsible for all of life in the universe. Maybe we should go spread life everywhere. Uh, maybe it's this planet that, that is the progenitor of all life uh, for the future of the universe. That's possible. Now, when it comes down to how I feel about it, I feel like we can't be alone. Um, when, you just, when you just start learning, not only about our solar system and all the possibilities for life and Venus and Mars, Europa, Enceladus, Titan, Triton, all these possible worlds, um, let alone maybe there are more planets in our solar system we haven't even found yet. That's entirely possible. Um, but now, you know, over 5,000 exoplanets all in a realm of space, mostly very close to us um in this in the galaxy that, that leaves a lot more galaxy out there for us to explore and so now we know that there's probably a boatload of planets out there there's probably a lot more planets than there are stars uh in our galaxy alone and then our galaxy is one of you know maybe a hundred billion other galaxies uh you know the, the numbers become very very staggering very quickly and it means that even even if, if life only happens to some small fraction of a fraction of a fraction of, a, of the worlds out there, there's just so many worlds, it would still mean that life is rather abundant. And so 
personally, even though, yes, we could be alone, it feels like there must be something else. It's, it's part of what's always drawn me to astrobiology. As a young kid, it drew me towards Star Wars and Star Trek and, and video games with aliens. You know, I, I wanted to know, like, what, what will it be like if we humans have a chance ever to go out there and explore and meet those things? But also, what might their lives teach us? What, 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 what do they have to inform us about uh, and teach us about? And so it's always made me wonder, you know, if, if if we're not alone, if there is life out there, can we meet that life? And can we actually have a conversation maybe one day with that life or some kind of sharing with that life? According to your feeling, we are not alone um, and we are looking for life. Do you imagine that they might be looking for us and maybe even found us, but chose not to intervene? So not only is it possible that that we have been found by alien life, it's possible that we're being watched. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, I would, I, I would assume like if we right now found an exoplanet and we found like, not just like a possible bio biosignature, but say we found definitive signs of life of alien life on an exoplanet. There's a very good chance that we would try to put together a message that we could send to that planet. Um, and that would take some work for us to agree upon, but, but we would also certainly start watching that planet very, very closely. Uh, we would monitor everything we could to see what's going on with that life. And so if an alien out there on some exoplanet or world near our solar system has already spotted life here, um, they might be watching. They might be trying to see what we're doing. Um, and depending on how far away they are, they're not looking at us right now. They're looking back in time, some some amount of time. Um, it could be four years ago if, if they're you know in Proxima Centauri. Um, around Prox B, maybe, um, or you know, if there's some 40 light years or 100 light years, then they're looking 40 years or 100 years in the past. Um, but still, they'd, they'd be seeing some interesting things. They'd be seeing not just our atmosphere with oxygen in it, which happened, you know, 2.7 billion years ago or something like that, um, but they'd also be seeing uh, things like industrialization, um, the addition of of these new molecules into our atmosphere. Um, from the processes of intelligence, from technological activity. Uh, so some researchers right now are also looking for that possibility. Uh, we call those technosignatures. Uh, it's a form of biosignature. It's a sign not just of life, but of the technological activity of life. Um, and so those are things like when you're flying in an airplane and you look down and you see the crop circles being formed by humans who go out in their fields with irrigation systems and they form these big circles and big squares and stuff everywhere. Uh, that's a techno signature. You're seeing a sign of technological activity from far away. Um, but we could do the same thing with industrial gases that could be in atmospheres. Um, other possible signs of technology could be a message that could be out there. And so for a very long time, we've been listening. Um, we haven't heard anything definitive yet that we're sure is a sign. Um, now we have machine learning and artificial intelligence being applied to this. Um, a new paper just came out the other day uh, suggesting eight possible candidate stars where there could be messages coming from them. Um, and I think with, you know, now that we have these larger, you know, artificial intelligence systems um, that can explore the data, um, not only, you know, are we, we listening as much as we can, but we really haven't been listening for that long in all of the realms of energy that can be sent to us. But we also haven't been able to process all the data anyway because there's so much of it. Uh, so now, you know, using machine learning and, and you know applying this to that process of of trying to understand if there are any signs out there, that could also lead us to finding a message from alien life as well. Um, and so personally, like I said, I, I feel like we can't be alone. And also, I, I personally feel like 
if there is other life out there, and I think there there should be, um, most likely other intelligence should be out there as well. We don't know how often intelligence forms among life. It, it might be that most worlds, if they have life, uh, just have microbial life or you know some some form of life that really hasn't figured out how to develop technology. But honestly, if there's any any possibility at all for life out there, then there must be somebody else who's developed tools uh, to learn about their place in the universe and developed something similar to our science, but they, they've used to build technology and, and then to, to build themselves up as a civilization. And so I want to know what they're doing, and I, I would love to talk to them. Yeah, I can imagine. I would love to talk to them, too. Um, as you said, your data sets are huge. And uh, you use AI to to process them, but how can we see that? How do you use AI in your research? Also, maybe personally in your work, do you use AI? Well, I do not personally. Um, so the, the kind of data that I'd be working with are geochemical uh, data, that kind of stuff. Um, and like I said, a lot more of my work these days is in the realm of science communication and things like that. Um, but there are a lot of people out there now who are applying you know, machine learning and artificial intelligence to to questions um, throughout science, in plant science as well as in space science. Um, there's a thing called the, the Frontier Development Laboratory at NASA. Um, that's a, a this this group. Uh, they they bring together um, graduate students and postdoctoral researchers uh, to work on issues that involve using machine learning and artificial intelligence applied to scientific topics, sometimes including things like astrobiology. Um, there are upcoming missions, and, and even even with JWST right now, people are are trying to figure out how do we apply, you know, machine learning to processing the data, um, because there is so much data being returned right now, and we certainly live in this era of big data. It's so easy now, you know, with our instrumentation and our our, our sensors and things like that to just collect, you know, a wealth of, of data. Um, you know, it's it's no longer a, a single undergraduate just sitting down with a stopwatch and writing down a data point every five minutes. You know, now it's it's sensors like collecting data all day, every day for you know days, weeks, years on end. Uh, and so, analyzing that data using machine learning, using artificial intelligence, is definitely burgeoning right now. And I I see it growing a lot more too in the field, especially for something like SETI, uh, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence, trying to sift through all of those data that come to us that we can listen to out there. Uh, it's just so much data for for humans to, to try to do by themselves. And so applying like a machine learning system to that, to have it scour through the data and look for possible signals amongst the noise is a huge step forward. And is that one of the major challenges astrobiology is facing right now, like processing this huge amounts of data? You know, that's always an issue for everyone. Um, but it's certainly a realm that where astrobiology is now seeing the support come from those systems, um, you know, for large data sets, you know, and, and that's not just for for SETI. It's not just for listening um, for possible signals from alien intelligences. Um, it could be for sifting through data from instruments on Mars, like Perseverance. You know, it's collecting data. Um, we we're launching the Europa Clipper to go orbit around Jupiter and Europa soon, and it'll be collecting a lot of data from the surface of Europa, um, not just images, but spectra as well. And we're at a place where we can collect a lot of data, but we can only send so much back to Earth so quickly. And so having systems that allow us to do some automation of the processing of the data right away. Um, so, you know, things like averaging out data sets and, and removing unnecessary data, things like that. Um, if we have systems that can do that right away on the instruments, then we don't have to send everything back to Earth. Um, but even once it gets back to Earth, then we can also analyze that using these, you know, automated systems that just save a lot of time for processing the data. 
um, it gets us a lot more analysis on a lot more data very quickly. And you also mentioned also already a few times uh, the research on Mars. Do you think we will be able to live on Mars in some foreseeable future? I do. Um, you know, it's, it's weird. Like people get like really emotionally invested in this question. And some people are like, you know, well, yes, we're going to Mars right now. We're going to do, we're going to live there. We're going to build, you know, Elon Musk is going to build a city of a million people next year. Um, even though we haven't, he hasn't landed anything there yet. Um, and then you have some other people who are, are very vehemently opposed to sending humans to Mars. Like, oh, Mars will kill you. Mars doesn't want you to live there. And that's true. We know we did not evolve to live on the surface of Mars, um, but we can. Uh, we can we can make spacesuits and habitats. We can build habitats inside of lava tubes. Uh, we can build habitats and cover them up with the Mars regolith, the soil of Mars. Um, there's a lot of things we could do to protect us from the radiation, to protect us from the the very cold temperature, um, which is you know it's average pretty cold there. Um, there's a lot we could do to allow humans to survive there. A lot of people have put a lot of time into understanding how we would build human habitation for Mars. And there's a lot of great stuff going on out there right now. And then there's a lot of us in the world who are analog astronauts. Um, not only have we done analogs to living in space, we've done analogs to living on Mars. Uh, so personally, in 2008, I was an analog astronaut at the Mars Desert Research Station in Utah uh, here in the U.S. But there are other Mars habitats, Mars bases around the world. There, there's two up in the Arctic, in the high Arctic. Um, there's a group who've been running one out of Iceland lately. Um, there's a, a couple of them that I know of across Europe. Um, there's one in Israel. Um, there's one in Hawaii. Uh, we have more of these popping up around the world where people want to not only experience what it might be like uh, to have to wear a spacesuit to go out and to live in a Mars habitat, but they're also like collecting data um, in these projects about you know how how will you perform. Um, collection of rocks while wearing a spacesuit. How will you estimate the distance to a mountain when you're out about with a spacesuit? Um, how will you grow plants in a Martian habitat? How will you get get along with your your crewmates when you're living on Mars? Um, many people have been involved in this now. There's even now an analog astronaut conference. Um, there was one last year in the spring. Then there's one coming again this year in the spring, um, where we went down to Biosphere Two um, itself, being an, an analog to creating a world inside. Um, of this big module of this biosphere um, where people had lived for an experiment. Um, and so we've, we've done that a lot. People want to know not only, you know, can we do it, but how will we do it? And so uh, honestly, I think it's going to happen. I think we're going to see the first humans on Mars in my lifetime. Um, I don't think it's going to be tomorrow. Uh, I, I think we still have some things to solve. We we could go right now. We have the technology. Uh, we've had we've had the capability of sending humans to Mars for a very long time, but right now we're really limited by resources and politics. And so, yeah, like we have seen movies like The Martian, where they grow potatoes, um, can can we grow plants on Mars? Well, that might be a better question for you, <laughs> with your background in, in plant science. Um, I will say. Um, so I, I've also been involved in the astrobotany project, um, looking into growing flowers on in Martian regolith. Um, I, have, I have several friends who are astrobotanists. One of my friends, uh, Rafael Larrero, uh, who's also a researcher at BMSIS, uh, Rafael jokingly told me immediately after that movie came out that Mark Watney would have died if he ate those potatoes because he didn't do anything to treat the the, the regolith, the soil. Uh, for the for the perchlorates, the perchlorate salts that are in the Martian regolith, 
Uh, we've now measured them many times. We know that the Martian regolith is enriched in perchlorate salts, and perchlorates are toxic to humans. Um, but they're also very soluble. So all you would have to do is just wash wash the regolith a little bit, and you can wash the perchlorates out. And so there are people like Rafael Larrero. Uh, he's at Winston-Salem State University um, in North Carolina. Um, he and his students who are undergraduates are doing projects just like that. Like, how do we wash the, the regolith? How do we wash out you know, Martian regolith to clean it up? How, how do we how do we make Mars and lunar regolith, you know, more accessible for plants to grow? Um, you know, so like the regolith itself is actually very hard. It's very coarse material. And so uh, I was talking with Raphael once about this, and he said, you know, the one issue that they've seen a lot is the roots. Uh, the plant roots have a hard time growing uh, in that really coarse, hard, you know, rough material. And so they're trying to find out, you know, other ways can we treat that material? You know, in the Martian, Mark Watney used his own feces, his own his own excrement to help, you know, get the nutrients into the regolith. But that probably also then made a, a better growing area inside of the regolith for the root systems. Um, but there are people doing that work um, in lots of labs now around the world. Ast Astrobotany is a huge growing field. Um, not just for growing plants on Mars, but, you know, how do we grow plants on the moon? How do we grow plants on the space station? Um, you know, we, we have, we've had a couple of modules now on the space station that are grow, growth chambers for growing plants. Uh, and astronauts on the International Space Station now have already eaten plants they've grown uh, on the space station. And so that's a big question, you know, like, not only how do we do the growing, but what changes in plant physiology and plant genetics happen when, when the plants are exposed to space or exposed to a lower gravity environment like the moon or Mars? Um, those are, are really good questions. And having the International Space Station uh, and other projects like that, it allows us to explore some of those changes as well. And was growing plants one of the things you needed to do as an analog astronaut or what did you need to do? Yeah, so on my crew, uh, so at, at the Mars as a research station, the crews are usually two weeks long. And so it's not really enough time to get super into a growth project. Um, we had a green hab back then, as we called it, a, a greenhouse habitat module. Um, that one, unfortunately, actually burned down in a fire some years ago. It's now been replaced by another greenhouse that's there, a new green hab. Uh, so when I was there as a crew, I, I was actually responsible for the green hab. Um, you didn't burn it down, did you? I did not burn it down, <laughs> thankfully. <laughs> Um, but I, I was responsible for the few plants that we had there at that point in time. Um, I wasn't doing any specific experiments. I was just helping the plants to, to continue thriving. Um, but we did a few experiments there. Uh, we did one one experiment, like I mentioned. Uh, so our one experiment that uh, was run by uh, one of my, my colleagues was slope estimation. Um, so trying to figure out when an, uh, an astronaut is out on the surface of a world, um, can they estimate the slope of hills uh, nearby? Uh, so it turns out the Apollo astronauts did a very terrible job of that um, because of the, the bulky spacesuits they had on, the environment they were in. They actually were very bad at estimating the slopes and distances and stuff on the moon. And so we were doing a project looking at trying to estimate slopes by feel and you know, like estimating numbers of slopes and, and then just doing some analyses of, you know, in the spacesuit versus not in the spacesuit and seeing the differences. Um, my friend Luis Zaya also uh, published a paper from our, our two-week uh, rotation uh, he did some um, analyses of the, the first aid and emergency response scenarios for astronauts who have issues in the field. Um, so, you know, say say you, you're out with your fellow explorer on the surface of Mars and something happens to your spacesuit. It gets ripped or there's a cut or you have a heart attack or, or you know, you become sick or something else happens. Um, we need to be prepared for those kinds of, of, of situations as well and basically have a set 
realm of knowledge before we even get to Mars of how to treat those issues when they pop up. So uh, you left academia uh, to go to industry. And actually, why did you do that? Or why do you, did you prefer industry? Yeah, and I'll start by saying, and yes, it is industry, but it is kind of weird um, how the ivory tower, how academia has basically said, you know, it's us or everything else is industry. Um, because yes, I, I left academia. Um, I just, I wasn't interested in doing a postdoc position, a, a postdoctoral position, which is what a lot of people look at the PhD, their PhD, and then they'll do a postdoc position. And usually it pays very poorly. Um, and they're also expected to work extremely long hours, much longer than they're being contracted to work. Um, and actually in my entire life, it's only in academia that I, I've, I've really seen people being abused so much that, you know, a lot of graduate students, when I, when I was a graduate student, I signed a contract with the university that said that I was being paid for 20 hours of work each week. Now, in any other career field, if you're getting paid for 20 hours of work each week, that means you work 20 hours and then the rest of that time is yours. In graduate school, no graduate advisor or department or committee is going to let a graduate student work only 20 hours a week. They're going to expect you to work 40, 50, 60, 70 hours a week. Um, oftentimes, graduate students are, are living and breathing their research. They're not just at, at, you know, on campus working. They're, they're also studying through the night and doing research on the weekends. And so a lot of graduate students are working 60-hour weeks. Um, it's very common. And so you know, I noticed in academia, it's, it's this weird thing where academics, a lot of them have never left academia to realize how poorly they've been treated but also how poorly they're treating their own graduate students and their own undergraduates and their own postdoctoral researchers. Um, you know, a lot of people, they'll get a PhD, they'll do a postdoc, and then they try to become an assistant professor, maybe eventually an associate professor or a full professor, um, and will often never leave the ivory tower. They'll never leave academia um, to realize that there is a much different world out there. And so, yes, I'm in industry, but Industry, basically, when it comes to academia, is everything that's not in the academia. And so it's government labs, it's working for research institutions, for nonprofits, it's taking on all kinds of other work that's out there in the world, um, which is much more than all the possible jobs in academia alone. Um, so industry is like 98% of everything, and then academia is like 2%. You know, like it's this little itty bitty thing compared to everything else out there. Um, and so that said, you know, like I didn't want to do a postdoc. I, I just I wasn't intrigued by this idea of, of you know, suffering longer and making no money and and being forced to to put myself out there. Um, I really I wanted to pursue things that intrigued me, um, both scientifically as well as in my own life. I, I wanted to spend more time focusing on communicating science. Um, I wanted time to be with my family. Um, my wife and I we have a young child. And I really wanted to be the best father that I could be. I, I still do. I'm, I'm, I'm trying my hardest to be the best dad I possibly can be for my son. Um, when I was a kid, my father wasn't there very, very often for me. And that, that, that has trickled into my own life in very many ways. And I know that if I had continued in academia, at least doing a postdoc and being assistant professor, there'd be a period of years there where I would still be expected to be working very long hours and it would be hard. I'd be doing grant writing on the weekends and doing research in the weeknights, you know, and it'd be hard to have time for my family. Um, but then I also, I was just drawn to this world of nonprofit work. Uh, my wife and I both work for nonprofits. Uh, she's currently the executive director for a wildlife rehab 
uh, a wildlife rehabilitation clinic uh, here in Colorado. Um, so they take care of things like raccoons and squirrels, songbirds and waterfowl, that kind of stuff. Um, and then I myself, I work for Blue Marble Space uh, in communications and marketing. Um, I was drawn to this realm that, you know, not only can I be a scientist, but I can also work in the, the nonprofit realm where the primary goal is to give something back to everyone. And so whether or not the nonprofit is focused on wildlife or space exploration or social issues, there's a lot of different nonprofits out there that people with PhDs could work for and actually provide a lot of really important um, um, knowledge and understanding. And they actually have a great place in a lot of nonprofits. Um, and then there's also, of course, there's a whole bunch of for-profit businesses as well. Um, I was just personally drawn towards the nonprofit realm because it kind of fits who I am a bit better. One of the things that uh, people in academia are saying that's the best thing they have or that they're afraid of when going to industry is the freedom to do research in what they want. And do you still have that freedom? Mm -hmm. I do. Um, so I will say it is hard because then you have to figure out how to write your own grants and how to go after money. I'm not currently grant funded for research, um, which makes it hard then to find actual time to still pursue my own research. But I'm allowed to do whatever I want. I can pursue any topic I want. Um, and that's kind of fun for me. And so it was one thing I was drawn to as well. And I've seen a lot of people do the same thing when they've left academia and they've gone to work for a nonprofit or a for-profit business, you know, is they, they have a lot more control over what they want to work on. Um, but then even, you know, some people, they don't really care that much about, you know, being in control of the project. They just want to do the work. You know, they want to go work in a government lab and just, just collect the data and do the work, you know, and enjoy it, but also still have a life <laughs> and still do their own thing, you know, and, and then pursue their own projects on the side. And so there's a, there's a lot of different things people can do um, if they choose to leave academia. And I personally, you know, I have nothing against academia. Um, I have a lot of friends who are professors and, you know, I, I, I was an adjunct professor for a little bit after I finished my PhD. Um, I would still consider going back every now and then, I think, and just looking for a visiting professorship or an adjunct professorship, um, because I, I always loved teaching. And if anything, I, I just I saw so many of my friends who were professors who were like struggling because like there's so little emphasis on the time that they get to spend really figuring out how to be good teachers and good instructors. And the best universities out there, these big R1 research schools, you know, that have a lot of money and a lot of funding and they they actually can afford to pay the professors a decent wage um, are, are still not focusing enough on the teaching. I, I was blown away. I, I started off in undergraduate. I started off at a very small college, a very small liberal arts college. And my classes were 20 students, maybe. Um, and so I, I knew my professors and the teaching was incredible. Um, and it blew my mind, like how good the education was that I received as an undergraduate. And then I went to a large research school and it was it was kind of striking. Um, there were still some good professors, but I, I was actually shocked at the larger research school, how many really bad professors there are. Um, they, they just don't spend any time at all or barely any time on developing their course materials, on thinking about how to be better teachers and instructors, how to how to convey the knowledge in a, in a better way. A lot of them are still following practices uh, of, of teaching that haven't changed in decades that have been around, you know, this past century, you know, they, they walk up in front of the class, they, they, they just give a long lecture for 40 minutes or 50 minutes, and then they, they take some questions and then they leave. Um, and that is just a very terrible way to teach and to learn. Um, and so, you know, I, I really, I'm, I'm still kind of blown away by that. And I really wish that, that my friends who become professors and who follow that career path, 
could choose whether or not they wanted to focus more on research and less on teaching or focus more on teaching and less on research. But a lot of them, especially to get tenure in these larger institutions, the institutions don't care about their teaching record. The institutions do care about their research record. And that is driving a lot of younger scientists who become professors away from being good teachers. And I find that very saddening. Yeah, teaching often isn't a priority. And I don't think, I have never heard of a, a professor who actually gets a course on teaching. They just wing it. Yeah, I mean, even, even graduate students, a, a lot of graduate students are supposed to be learning how to teach. And, and the process for doing that often is just making them walk into a classroom and start teaching. There, there's no process there. There's no structure. Um, some programs, some departments in the world try their best to offer structure and to help their graduate students learn to teach. Um, you know, my, my, my wife, when she was in graduate school at the University of Colorado, uh, she was in their ecology and evolutionary biology department. Uh, they had a very good program of trying to teach their graduate students how to be better teachers. Um, and, I, and I saw the value in that a lot and, and how she and her, her colleagues were able to be better instructors as graduate students. That's not the case, though, in most places. In most places, the graduate students are walking into these, these seminars and these workshops and labs, and they're just teaching however they can figure it out to make it work. We're running out of time, so we're going to round up here. But do you have a take-home message for our listeners? Absolutely. Um, everyone can be an astrobiologist. So like I mentioned earlier, astrobiology is not just the science of trying to understand you know, where life comes from, how it started here, whether or not we're alone. Astrobiology really is the human understanding. It's our human quest to understand what life is. And so it requires all of us thinking together. And sure, there are some of us who you know have laboratories or instruments or uh, access to, to data from the JWST and other things like that. But everyone can be involved in the, the human discussion of what it means to be alive, to be here now, to be observing ourselves from space, to prepare us for how we might respond to alien life when we find it, and even better, how to communicate with aliens if they want to communicate with us. And there's a lot for us to explore, a lot for us to learn, and I think there's a place for everyone at that table. That's a great sentiment. Thank you. Um, this was the 14th episode of Apple Finch Pudding. Um, I want to thank you, Graham Lau, for the uh, information. And let's meet again for the next episode of Apple Finch Pudding.